Um, it's definitely significant in the fact that we go through Sunday school learning about the fiery furnace. Um, but I'm hoping today that as we focus in on this passage of the Bible, as we do every time we come to God's Word, we are seeing its implication, its bearing, and its weight that it's having on our lives right now. Uh, though this was written thousands of years ago, um, it has meaning for us today in the present. So I hope we don't miss that. Uh, just to give you a quick background um, for this passage, we have a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar who has come from Babylon to Jerusalem and has sieged the place. And as he's done that, he has captured uh, some young men, some young Jews that without blemish, you can read all this in chapter 1, and he takes them and basically kidnaps them to do his work. Um, and so Daniel, who the book is written after, and some of his friends, uh, which the king renames, their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he takes these four in particular, um, and actually God gives them favor in the sight of the king, um, and so they actually get a little bit of a place of authority within this kingdom. Um, and like I said, Nebuchadnezzar ends up changing their names, at, uh, God gives them favor in his sight. So we get to Daniel chapter 3, and there's a little bit of a turn of events. Um, Daniel and his friends are blessed by God in the sight of the king. Um, and now the problem is that the Jewish people believe in one God. They believe in the God of the Bible. Uh, this is not so with King Nebuchadnezzar that's come from Babylon. Um, and so what he's going to do is he's going to erect a statue, a golden image, um, that is, we don't know if it's of himself or if it's of another God that he worships. And he's going to tell everyone in the place to bow down and worship this golden image. Um, so let's read, starting in chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here we see what is really a terrible thing that Nebuchadnezzar has been doing. And in fact, he's actually mocking the God of the universe in how he sets this up. Um, in the previous chapter, actually, when Daniel reveals dreams to Nebuchadnezzar, he's praising God. He says, this is the one true God. And now in the very next chapter, we see Nebuchadnezzar setting up a golden image for everyone else to worship. And we know this is wrong. This is in the Ten Commandments, right? First of all, you should not worship any other God but God alone. And you should not set up a carved image or a graven image and worship that. And so he's breaking those two commandments right here. But listen to some of the connections that are made. God says, like I said in, in the first commandment, you should worship him alone. 
Nebuchadnezzar is saying, no, you should worship this statue alone. Nothing else. Bow down before it. God says that for those that don't believe in him, we'll spend eternity apart from him in hell. We, we actually believe that as Christians. That should motivate us to go tell others about Christ. But God says that. Nebuchadnezzar here is saying that whoever doesn't fall down before this golden image will be sent into a fiery furnace, basically like a hell on earth, right? And so he's kind of mocking the God of the universe and how he even sets up this image. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree. And every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. These are the tattletales, right? These are the people that we don't like to hang out with. They're coming and saying, this is what you said. Verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the fairs, the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So here, these prefects, these Chaldeans, these, these people that are basically King Nebuchadnezzar's yes-men are coming to him and saying, listen, you remember what you said, and here are some of these Jews over here, and they're not listening to you. They're not bowing down. They're refusing to do it. The music's playing, and they're standing, and you said, king, that you would throw them in the fiery furnace. Now, remember what I said in the context. They were given favor in God's sight to the king. So he knew these people. He knew Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you'll notice that Daniel's not actually in this chapter or in this account. We're just focusing on the three friends. We don't know where Daniel is at this point. But he knows these three men, these three young men, whom he had kidnapped, whom he had captured. So you have to imagine the situation and really you have to get yourself into the drama of the text here. Three young men, kidnapped, taken away from everything they've ever known. Uh, they were put on special restrictions, special uh, things that they were learning in the, in the, with, with all the Chaldeans there, it says in chapter 1. Um, they found favor in the eyes of the king. The king is now making them bow down before an image which is worshiping someone else other than God, and he knows that in doing that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are proving their faithfulness to their God, the God of the Bible, and they won't bow down to worship it. And if they don't do this, which they didn't, that means that they will be burned alive. And so they're probably looking around and seeing many of their fellow friends and, and Israelites caving into this and bowing down before the image. We're told of no other Israelites that stood up with them. It's these three guys. And so you can imagine if you were in their shoes, the drama that's unfolding here, the implications that it has in, honestly, you can imagine how scared these three guys were. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought, so that they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound, here's the instruments again, of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, 
you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This gets very intense here. The king is furious. The boys are no doubt scared. And now they're getting a second chance. This probably plays into the favor they had with the king. He's giving them a second chance. He's playing all the instruments again. Uh, He has them before him. And now he's saying, here you go. When the music starts, bow down and worship this image. And if you don't, you will be cast into the fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar takes it one step further. And he, again, mocks in the most blasphemous way, the God of the universe, by saying, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Again, do you see the switch he's made? He is playing God, and he's mocking the God of the universe in doing so. And so, as we see this, and and really the main point that I want to get here at this text is the three words that come out of the mouth of these servants of God. They're, they're very important words that I want us to notice, words that I think that we as Christians have forgotten how to say, words that insinuate an utter faithfulness to God and show a certainty that He is in control of everything. And they might not be the words that we think here. Starting in verse 16, listen to the reaction of these three, remember, young men taken from everything they know, following God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, verse 16, and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So they're, they're clapping back at him. He, they're saying that you think that there's no God to deliver us? We know our God will deliver us. And then here's the three words, verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They say if the situation is we either bow down and worship this golden image or we die, then we choose death. Our God, the God of the universe, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And if you think about what's wrapped up in that statement, when they say, our God is able to deliver us, think about the, the memory reels that are playing through their mind. God delivered his people from Egypt, right, out of slavery. He leads them out of this land. He leads them through the Red Sea. He shows them by a pillar of fire where to walk at night and, and this tornado-looking thing by day. He's doing all these things. He's delivering them. Time and time again, God has delivered his people out of the hands of their enemies in battle and in war. Time and time again, he's done this. And we've seen God deliver his people from disease and death and all the sicknesses that come upon other nations. He's delivering constantly. So when they say, our God is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king, think about what's probably going through their heads as they say that statement. They're relying back on God's faithfulness. God's people have been delivered so many times throughout the accounts of Scripture. And if God has delivered his people then, can he not deliver them now? out of this furnace? Can he not deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar? But what they say in verse 18 is, but if he doesn't, but if not, can you imagine saying that right there in the drama of the text, in their shoes, they're saying, but if not, know this, we're not bowing down. 
We're not caving in. We will worship our God and our God alone, even if He doesn't get us out of here. This shows that they recognize who is in control, who holds their lives in His hands, who upholds the the entire universe by the word of His power, and it shows they know who knows what's best for them. There is one God. We will serve Him. If that means death, so be it. What is our life but to serve God and bring Him glory? This text wasn't written yet, but Philippians chapter 1, Paul may be getting inspiration from this account. He says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. They're saying, come what may. If it's death, Christ will be honored. God will be honored through our death. If we live, if He delivers us, God will be honored. This is really what they're saying here. They're going to serve God. They're going to continue to live for Him even if he doesn't deliver them. I think that we as Christians, and I'm preaching to myself just as much here, that we have forgotten how to say these three words when it comes to fiery trials in our lives. We have forgotten how to say, but if not, and maybe not so that we've forgotten, we don't want to say those words. We're not doubting God that he can't. They know God here in this situation is able to snatch them out of there in the blink of an eye. They know that God is able to bring destruction to Nebuchadnezzar and his reign and his rule and restore the Israelites. They also know that God is able to do something much greater than they could ever imagine. And maybe that means getting thrown into the furnace. God has a purpose whether they are delivered or not. And that purpose, listen to this closely, that purpose always works out for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Every time throughout Scripture, The good of his people is being sought by a loving God who is also seeking in the good of his people the glory of his name, the uplifting of who he is, the magnifying, the exalting of himself. And this is not a prideful thing. This is not a prideful thing because in so he's seeking the good of his people. They go hand in hand together, whether we see it's good or not. So you may be going through something in your life right now and you may even trust that God is able to deliver you from it. But you are hesitant to say, I am still going to serve him with just as much passion if he doesn't deliver me from it. Maybe you have a loved one who's really sick and you plead with God for them to be healed and you're hesitant to say, but if not, I will praise you all the more. Or maybe you're struggling in your workplace or with family members, with drama in your family. And you're hesitant to say, but if not, if you don't don't fix this situation, God, you are still good and you are still faithful. And whatever situation you're going through, God is always doing what's best for his people so that he would be praised and we would find joy for those of us that are in Christ. But how quickly we forget God's faithfulness. How quickly we forget that He is the Creator, that He is the Sustainer, that He is the Deliverer. We are ready to jump ship when God doesn't do something that we want. Like, God, I didn't ask for this trial. Why are you giving this to me? I didn't ask to be thrown in the furnace. I thought when I followed you that things would get better, not worse. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-7 says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, notice those two words, those have big implications, you have been grieved by various trials, 
So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here is a purpose behind some of these things that we're going through. God gives them to you if they're necessary in your life. When you go through tough times, probably means they were necessary for you. So it tests you, the genuineness of your faith. It could be found to result in praise and glory and honor for Christ. That's your good and His glory consuming all into one spot there. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego no doubt want to be delivered from the furnace. Nobody asks to be thrown into the furnace. They don't want to go there. No doubt they're saying this. But they said, here in verse 18, but if not... Because they know that God is in control, that He has a plan. When we suffer in this life, do we not believe that God will deliver us from suffering? But what if He doesn't? Will we not trust Him still all the more? Will we not be confident that He is doing something great? I fall back on the words of Isaiah 55 often. I think they're in there, yeah. This is God speaking. This is what He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's level of thinking is far surpassing anything that we could muster up in our brains. His ways are not our ways. We think we have things under control. We think our ways are best. They're not. This is the God of the universe we're talking about who knit us together. Do you not think that he knows what's best for us? Man, how hard it is to trust that. This is what he says. My thoughts are better. My ways are better. Higher than the heavens are than the earth. That's how far that separates. That's the gap that separates my thoughts and your thoughts, my ways and your ways. I am working all things out for your good and the glory of my name. I promise you. This is what God is saying to us. This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are believing in their statements. Let's continue to read verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of the army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. All this detail comes to us to show us nobody should survive this, right? And even more so, 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So they're thrown in there with all their clothes on, hats on, and the guys that threw them in there actually died from the heat. Okay? Nobody's supposed to survive this. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up. And this is the part that we've all learned from Sunday school and every, everything else in between. He was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, 
and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of gods, of the gods. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. That's amazing, that text right there. That's amazing obedience in the face of extreme difficulty. The king apparently has a front row seat to all this action and he stands up because he's astonished because he now sees not three men in there but four. And the fourth guy looks different. He looks divine, not of this world. The king, the king sees them, calls them out, sees that they're unharmed and he turns to praise the one and only God, the one that a few verses earlier he was mocking and saying, who's going to deliver you out of my hands? Not your God. Yet he does right in front of his eyes. And so he comes back with the only right response to this, and that's worship of the God who delivered them. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel to deliver his servants. What God did here was for his glory. The king, and which means ultimately the people, in verse 29, he's going to set a decree that everyone has to worship this God, the God of the Bible. So the king and ultimately the people are bringing glory to God. And his people are delivered out of the furnace. God is doing these things for the glory of his name and the good of his people. And we see that match up here at the end of the fiery furnace. So church family, I want us to see this. To really read over this text and this account. And don't worry, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be humbled here in the next few chapters in a bizarre way. You should read it. But if we say we believe in God, what good is it if we're not going to show it? If we say Jesus is our Savior, what good is it that when the going gets tough, when the fiery trials come, we just bow down and we worship the statue like everyone else? What good is that? What good is it if the world around us is doing the wrong thing, we don't stand up to do the right thing for the glory of God who cares for us and delivers us from our sin, trusting that somehow the mess will be created into something beautiful for God's glory? So at the end of this account, We see a fourth person, and this is where I'll conclude. We see a fourth person in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's called in the text, the angel or the servant of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, most of the time when you see that type of language, I believe, and this is my opinion, I could be wrong on this, I believe that it's talking about a pre-incarnate Christ. Talking about Jesus himself in the flesh with them there. Anytime that that language is used, the angel of the Lord, and I say that for many different reasons, and I'm not alone in thinking that. Um, So if you have questions about that, you can ask me afterwards. But the question that we have to come to grips with at the end of this text, 
Is it okay, I've seen the faithfulness of God. Remember, the memory reels are in their head. They've seen how God has delivered his people all throughout the Old Testament up until this point. They've seen that happen. They know God's faithfulness. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the past. And they believe that he is working all things out for their good and his glory. They believe that because they say, listen, king, um, God's able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, it's okay. We will still serve him. So they're saying that in the present, they are okay with that situation. That they believe that God is able to deliver, and if he doesn't, that he will do something great. But the question for us, and and probably the question they're asking, how will I be sustained through the trial? How will I then get through the fire? What am I going to do when the fiery trial comes, when I'm thrown into the furnace? And, you know, use that metaphorically in your life for whatever you may be going through. This is a reminder to us here at the end. The fourth person in the fire is a reminder to us that in the middle of our darkest moments and when all hope seems lost and when we are starting to go back on our but if not answer, Christians, if you've put your faith in Christ, then through every trial you go through, through every hard time that falls on you, even in the best of times, your Savior, Jesus Christ, is there with you walking through the fire. And who better to be in the middle of the mess than the one who purchased your way out of it? He has been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin, which means he gets it. He knows, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When we go through a trial, we can never call out and say, God, you have no idea what I'm dealing with. You have no idea what it's like. Yes, he does. He is our great high priest. Who knows? Who sympathizes with our weaknesses? He was tempted every way that we are, yet he did not sin. He knows and he is there with you. The sustaining power of your but if not answer to whatever comes in your life So the answer to your suffering in your life is Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, who promises to be there with you. And the text that we went over today in Sunday school, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Though the trial doesn't let up, though there may not be a deliverance from your suffering, Christ is walking through the fire with you, giving you grace, giving you power. While you are weak, He is strong. Ultimately, He's going to bring you home to a place where the fire will not strike you, where pain is no more, and where joy is spilling over at max capacity. This is the God and the Savior that we worship, that while we're in the trial, He's there too. He doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. So church, I want us to trust, to trust God. So much so that even in the face of life-threatening situations, even in the face of our most difficult situations, even in the face of seemingly impossible feats in our life, we don't jump ship, but we send out our anchor. We drop our anchor and we cry out, God, you are able to deliver me. But if you don't, And sometimes those words will come with tears. Sometimes those words will come with heartache. 
But if you don't deliver me, blessed be your name. May you be glorified in this situation. May you be honored in my body, whether it's by life or whether it's by death. All of this consumes somehow for our good, our strengthening in faith, our reliance upon our Savior, being close with Him. Notice it doesn't say that the angel of the Lord was with them when they were standing there. The angel of the Lord comes into the picture when they're thrown into the fire. And He is there with you. So all this works out for the glory of His name and the good of His people. I hope we see that. This is something that is very difficult for us to grasp as humans when all we see is pain and suffering, when all we see is broken relationships, when all we see is destruction in our world. It is so hard for us to grasp onto it. We know that God can deliver us But we are hesitant to say, if he doesn't, we will still praise him. I hope we can cling to that scene that God knows best, that God is working things out for our good, and that God will be glorified, and he will be magnified above all else. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the encouragement it brings to us. Thank you for revealing it to us. Thank you for the promises that it displays. That while we're walking through temptation, while we're walking through trial and suffering, you are there. That you are there with nail-scarred hands showing that you have purchased our way out. And ultimately, even if it doesn't end, it will one day end when you bring us home to be with you. Give us the sustaining power of Christ through every trial and temptation. Give us the boldness to say, but if not. Give us the strength to say, but if not. Keep us obedient in trusting you. Let us be reminded that our ways are not yours. And that our thoughts don't even compare to yours. Keep us, God. Hold us fast. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.